My name is Katrina LaRose, and I'm going to be reading from the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 1, verses 18 through 25, from the NIV. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. The intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world, through its wisdom, did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs, and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews, and foolishness to the Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. You may be seated. So um, I want to start the sermon with what one of my New Testament professors used to call preliminary comments. Has nothing to do with a text, as he often would say, had to do with his lectures. But here are my preliminary comments. The first one has nothing to do with this particular sermon. It's an announcement concerning a future activity that Dan and I are going to extend to all of you, especially given this series, which can be either controversial or challenging or maybe a little bit, some would say, too intellectual. Um, We want to give a chance for you to ask us questions after the service is over. Um, We don't have a date yet for the first one. We're waiting a little bit to try to figure out our schedule. It won't be every Sunday. So if there are things that you really are disturbed by um, or interested in, if you write those down several weeks down the way, you may be able to uh, ask those questions of us. Um, We know that the sermon that is given on the Sunday of sermon feedback is going to be the one where there's the most questions. So I'm trying to schedule that on the Sundays that Dan preaches. (laughs) Hopefully you will have forgotten everything I said before that. Um, So today, though, uh, the sermon uh, is entitled God and the Authority of Scripture. And I I want to say something up front. I am going to do my best, which I don't always do well, of being calm and reflective and carefully following my notes, which I almost never do. That's going to be my attempt. Um, Second thing is to remind you of the series that we're in. And I think I probably ought to do this every once in a while. We're in a series, as the slide says, of adjusting our focus. Adjusting our focus as the people of God in the particular contemporary culture that we live in. 
We need to adjust our focus in order to understand the wisdom of God. And so we've chosen to break out this entire series into four parts. The first is adjusting our focus on the notion of authority. That will come to an end next week uh, when Dan speaks. Uh, The second part of it is adjusting our focus as it relates to truth. What is truth? The third part of the series is adjusting our focus as it relates to grace. The fourth part of the series is adjusting our focus as it relates to our personal identity. And the fifth part of the series is adjusting our focus as it relates to community. So today, it's the second of the section called Adjusting Our Focus on Authority, and namely, God and the Authority of Scripture. So here's, here's a reality that I think you would agree with. God, the ultimate authority, communicates, or you may say mediates, through Scripture, His will for human beings. That, that's something that most people here this morning would agree with in some part. You may say it differently. But here's the thing. The idea that an eternal God does or even could mediate his word through the Bible, and that word would actually be accepted as word of God and authoritative, that, that idea, my friends, is countercultural. Now, before we start pointing fingers outside the walls of the church, let us embrace the fact that we're a part of the culture, which means that even for us, it is sometimes countercultural to say, oh, I accept the authority of God because I happen to see it mediated through the word. Sometimes when we don't like the word, we push back, right? Nobody's agreeing with me, but I think probably some of you have thought that. Yeah. <laughs> Somebody said an amen. So our culture says that's not possible. And intuitionally, the statement is counterintuitionally, uh, it, counter to our understanding, counter to what we think rational. So even, even we and the outside world say the notion that God could communicate authoritatively through a written text is counterintuitive. It just doesn't make any sense. It's, it's shall we say, non-rational, right? It's not really possible. Now, if that's our contemporary world and widely accepted, I want to suggest three things that, well, will counter, correct, or readjust our focus on this topic. 
First, the idea is not, and we know this to be true, is not popular in our pluralistic culture where we're allowed or even encouraged to find our own authority. That's one reason it's hard to accept. Another reason it's hard to accept is because the idea on the face of it that an ancient book like the Bible, written in numerous different languages in entirely different cultures thousands of years ago, that a book like the Bible could be relevant today seems to many just plain ridiculous. Third, the problem is that many people think that a written code could not be eternal. By, by its very nature, it's written. How could it be eternal? Those are roadblocks to our understanding the word as authoritative. They're part of the world we live in. So I want to suggest some things that will challenge those objections and will reframe the discussion. So here we go. Point number one is the eternal word. The eternal word. Early on in the history of Christianity, there was a a huge debate concerning the revelation of Jesus and how the gospel seemed to be almost contradictory to the Old Testament. And one of the people that emerged in this controversy was a guy called Marcion. And Marcion said, well, there's not so much of a problem if you look at it this way. Jesus is the one who is correct concerning the human condition and how we ought to live. As a matter of fact, Jesus is the real God. There was before Jesus a God that wasn't really a real God the God was a false God. And that God was the God of the Old Testament. A one who was wrathful and appeared to be vengeful and would strike you down. But now we got Jesus. So what I want you to do, said Marcion, is I want you to take that whole big part of the canon, which is the largest part, and I want you to just throw it out the window. And take only parts from the gospel and some of the epistles as word of God. That'll solve your problem. Well, it didn't solve the church's problem for a variety of reasons. It doesn't work. Number two, because Jesus constantly over and over again was affirming the Old Testament. His teachings grew out of it. There was no other scripture apart from it. So when Jesus spoke, he was speaking about the Old Testament. As a Jewish prophet teacher, he was teaching and living out the Old Testament. He was announcing 
the kingdom of God. Now, you may say to yourself, man, I'm glad we got that fixed. Not so fast. People still see it as a problem, the Old Testament and New. Some people. Even within the circle of evangelicalism, have proposed theories that are kind of like contemporary Marcionism. Statements like this from a very popular preacher that what we ought to do is that we ought to unhitch the New Testament from the Old Testament. In order to understand grace, it needs to be unhitched. So let me tell you what that image brings to mind, okay? Here's what it brings to mind. Driving through southern Indiana, and it wouldn't take you long, to find an old travel trailer that has been unhitched and left in a field because it's no longer relevant. They don't use it. It's got too many leaks. The suspension is gone. And there it is in the field, cluttering up otherwise God's beautiful creation. They unhitched it. Here's another image that comes to mind when I think of unhitched. I think of railroad cars that are unhitched. Now, there's a variety of those. But one of those railroad cars unhitching might be a passenger car from a bygone era. Unhitched, but now a beautiful museum of the way it used to be. In either case, that image is faulty when it comes to the New Testament and old. Uniformly, the church has said, you do not unhitch the New Testament from the old. Whatever your perspective, what I just said is true. Uniformly, the church has advised against that. That's the problem that Marcion and other people continue to address. What's the solution? One of the things about this sermon and the sermon series is it's almost like every third line could be another lecture. And I can't let it go there. But I do want to say something about addressing the problem and what I call solution. Here's the solution. The whole counsel of God, including the Old Testament, is the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit speaking to the world. Now you might say, well, that's not much of a revelation. Yes, I know it's not, but let's think about it for a minute. At the beginning of the book of John, John wanted people to understand who Jesus was. Remember the words? Let me remind you, they go like this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God, and the Word was God. Second person of the Trinity. 
through him, Jesus Christ, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him, the Logos, Jesus Christ, in him was life, and that life was the light of all humanity. The light shines into the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome or comprehended it. So let's see if I can do this properly. That section right there of the Bible is the Old Testament. See how big it is? This section of the Bible is the New Testament. See how small it is? When the Old Testament prophets spoke the word of the Lord, it was actually the word speaking the word. It was the second person of the Trinity, not just becoming incarnate in flesh, but before all time, speaking Logos, the Word. So when you look at the Old Testament, reorient your thinking and say the prophet said this, and that was Jesus, the Word. If you think that way, it might be revolutionary. And you might not be as inclined to discount the Old Testament. The Word was speaking into and creating creation. The Word was speaking the law. The Word, second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, was speaking in and through the prophets. I'll give you a picture of that. On a particular day, the disciples went up to what is now called the Mount of Transfiguration. Remember who was there besides them? Three people. Moses, the lawgiver. Elijah, the chief prophet. And right in the middle, Jesus. And a voice from heaven came to the disciples and said, This, the one in the middle, the one you're walking with every day, that's my beloved son. Listen to him. I don't want to color outside the lines, but the author of that revelation could have said, what this means is that that eternal word which preexisted the prophets and the law, was always speaking into the reality of humanity. It's, it's the eternal word. Listen to him. So what happens from that day forward? The word has legs, and he walks among them, and the word speaks, and they listen to his every word. And then he dies and he's raised from the dead and he passes on this baton, so to speak, concerning the word of God to the apostles. 
And the apostles speak as the prophets did before Jesus, the word of God. And in effect, the scripture says, listen to them. It's the word of God. You know what's further true? This is scary. The word is still speaking today through Christ's church. Why do I say it's scary? Because I never get it quite right. Why do I say it's scary? Because the church never gets it quite right. Why do I say it's scary? Because of the history of heresy in the church. But it remains true that because Jesus declared a new era with the power and presence of the Holy Spirit, the church is being guided into all truth by the speaking and reading and listening to and taking in the word. The word is just as sharp and powerful as it ever was. Oh, my. I I really, at this point, have no idea what to do. Um, Well, there's too much. Maybe Dan and I should talk. The second major point is the contextual word. So first, we talk about the eternal word, which is Jesus Christ. Always speaking, always has, always will. The second part is the contextual word. The Old Testament is spoken into an ancient culture, multiple ancient cultures. And the key to understanding that word is through story. The story of creation, the story of Abraham, the story of Moses, the story of the Israelite kingdom, and the story of wisdom literature and poetry. Those are all stories to inform our understanding of what Word of God is. In those stories, we run into things that seem odd, at least to us, out of place. Jesus enters those stories, doesn't find them odd, doesn't find them out of place. After all, it was his heritage. He was Jewish. So what did Jesus do? He stepped into those stories, and he reinterpreted them. Let's put it differently. That's not like something I would do and mess up at. Jesus stepped into those stories and said, these stories are about me, and you've gotten it wrong routinely, so let me correct you. That's what Jesus did. He did it with the scribes and the Pharisees over and over again. People that knew the law, by the way, better than any of us did. And we're committed to following the law in a way that none of us are. They were serious about it. And they were very literalistic about it. But Jesus said to them on multiple occasions, you don't understand the law. And one of the reasons you don't understand the law according to Jesus is because Moses said what you just said, but he said it because of the hardness of your heart. 
What does that mean? That's so confusing, isn't it? It it is. He, He said it that way because of the hardness of their heart. Another way to understand it is he said it in the context of where you were, how you were living, what life was like around you. He spoke the word into your life in that situation. And now, says Jesus, routinely, the situation has changed. And the apostles pick up this theme, which is why the ceremonial walls are no longer important to following Jesus. Were they important? Were they word of God? Absolutely they were. And there's all kinds of reasons those ceremonial walls were word of God. It kept them in the desert, nomadic people, from contracting horrible diseases. Issues like if you have a contagious disease, you go outside the camp which first century Judaism had associated with leprosy. Go outside the camp and stay away. When you come in, shout unclean. You know the story of Jesus. He's ushering in the kingdom of God. And he says, leper, come to me. I'm going to heal you. Was the law irrelevant? No, it was well-placed. But when Jesus came, he reinterpreted the whole thing. Um, So let me say this. Those of us who take the the Word of God seriously, and I I count myself among them, we have uh, an Achilles heel deep within our commitment. Here's the Achilles heel. When we love the word so much and we depend on it word for word so much and we interpret it literally so much and we follow it so specifically so much, it is possible for us to become the Pharisees with the beautiful word of God, we can become the Pharisees. Jesus, in effect, said to the Pharisees, you've turned the law into an idol. It's no longer God. It's rules. You want to hear an irony? (laughs) You know where the first notion of idolatry comes from in our Old Testament scriptures? When Moses delivered the law and the people rejected it and made a golden calf. And now Jesus says to those who are really severe followers of the law, you have taken the beautiful thing that was delivered by God and turned it into an idol. You have been so legalistic you don't understand grace. And Jesus just blew things up in terms of interpretation. I'm going to get through this. The third point is a mediated word. The authority of the written word rests squarely on God's authority. 
Let me say that again to make sure you heard it. The authority of the written word rests squarely on God. God's authority. The written word is inspired by God. I believe it to the core of my being. But the written word is not God. It ought not to be turned into a rule book or a good luck charm that you point at and carry around with you. That's not what the Word of God is for. It's not something unto itself, right? Detached from God. It is absolutely attached to God. And the Word of God is mediated word from God. This sounds like a heresy for an evangelical pastor to say, but that's not the Word of God. Oh, it is. You know, I believe it. But the Word of God is the mediated Word of God directly from God Himself. And in this book, In this book and in our human history, God used flawed people, terribly flawed people, to mediate his word to future cultures. Who is the epic of the kingdom of God in Israel? Name him. Come on. David. Who is the hideous sinner? And the epic reality of the kingdom of God in Israel, David. Adulterer and murderer. In the word of God, God mediates through history, through enormously flawed people, to give us his will and his word. Third point, the living word. The word continues to speak into all cultures. I said it was going to be very calm and reflective, right? Sometimes I haven't been. The word continues. The word continues to speak into all cultures. Into the community of the church. And when it speaks... And when people discover its power and its truth, things change. They're called historical correctives. And there's lots of them in the history of the church. But historical correctives are incomplete, which is why the church continues to uncover the wisdom of God in new ways. The creeds of the church corrected some serious errors, but they also delivered some errors. The Great Reformation, which is our heritage, corrected some major errors in the medieval church. 
but it also created some errors in the Protestant church. I don't have enough time to dissect that, but most of you know that's true. The fundamentalist modernist controversy, disputes, they were a historical corrective to a church gone awry, but they too introduced their own errors. Let's get even more personal, shall we? The evangelical church that's just all over the place in every denomination, that evangelical church with this emphasis on personal relationship with Jesus provided a corrective and created a potential error. I'm not going to go into it. I'll just leave it there. You can ask me about it later. Apart from this, in an evangelical world, we sometimes talk about our devotional life and our Bible as if all we need is God and my Bible. Because I have a personal relationship with Jesus. I wish I could make you scared of that. So the presence of the word is mediated. Right now, the living word, through the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit, in Christ church. And Christ church makes all kinds of errors. But we don't just look at the errors in retrospect and say, oh, look what the mistakes they make. We, we, we look at the errors today and ask, where are we going astray, right? And we ask God to give us insight and open up his word to us so that we can see. Now, this truncated thesis, if it's at all compelling, the question is, what do we do about it? What do we do with it? First thing I will say is that we study the scriptures intently to find the wisdom of God. Like the Berean Christians, when Paul went and spoke to them, they didn't just listen to him. They listened and they searched the scriptures to see if these things were true. That's our goal, our objective. In order to do that, we have to apply the word and its directive to contemporary life. And sometimes that flies in the direction of, well, anti-intellectual, anti-rational, anti-cultural. But we must do it. So I got this uh, wonderful little slide that Adam created for me, and I, I, I need to go to the other one. There's two of them, I hope. Yeah. I need to uh, give credit where credit's due, because he put this thing together. I don't know how he always does this kind of stuff. See that stool? It's a three-legged stool. Um, this probably is the best description of what is called the quadrilateral understanding of the Christian faith. It, it finds its roots in John Wesley. 
And basically, the image is inadequate, but the image helps you understand that Wesley was saying that if you're able to understand Scripture at all, you must take it through the prism of reason and experience and tradition, all three. They're important to understanding Scripture. So I would suggest that a lot of times, see the leg of the stool, it's over there to the right. That one's wobbling or falling off for evangelicals. We're not so interested in it. It's all about me and my Jesus, right? Here's another diagram, the first one that was just shown. Suppose instead of the stool, we did something like this, like this, like that, like the previous slide. There we go. (laughs) Suppose we, we created a bookshelf. And the bookshelf is scripture, and there's three things up there, experience, tradition, and reason. And we said, in order to understand scripture best, we utilize these tools, okay? That, that's enough of that slide. I'm going to say something more about that in another sermon. Uh, You know, graphics are always inadequate, but I'll try to explore that more another time. So when we search the scriptures for the wisdom of God, maybe the thing we should ask is this. What is 1 Corinthians 1? 18 through 25, what is the foolishness of the cross today? What kind of ideas have I embraced that the foolishness of the cross challenges? To what extent am I able to be foolish to the world and wise to God. I'd suggest it might just be a phrase for you to use over and over again. Is this the wisdom of the world? Or is it the foolishness of the cross? You know which way you should follow. Third thing about what if or what we should do is to invest in the community of faith to find God's word. Not just me and my God and my Bible, but the community of faith that helps me to understand. Our best intentions are always susceptible to self-deception, right? We know that. A person who was not a Christian or a theologian made a rather stirring statement about that. His name was Wittgenstein, and he said, nothing is so difficult as not deceiving oneself. We're full of self-deception. It's, it's part of our sin nature. So we need people around us to help us stay on track. And by the way, I don't mean just the people sitting next to you. We need the whole community of faith. We need to hear the voices outside this church and the preachers outside this message. We need to expand our understanding of what God might be saying and doing in our world through his word. Sounds a little risky, but it's important. 
We ought to consider, third, the historical contemporary errors of interpretation in order to understand the Word of God. Recently in our Thursday meeting, if you have a child in children's ministry now, you can go, okay? Because they're going to be so mad at me next week. And I, I appreciate that anger. Um, but please go get your kids. Um, we were reading a book in our Thursday pastors meeting some time ago called Jesus and the Disinherited, written by an author who is of um, the African-American tradition and a theologian. His name was Howard Thurman. Howard Thurman um, told a story about his grandmother. <laughs> it's a fascinating story. Say His grandmother couldn't read. She couldn't read and she couldn't write. And so Thurman would read to her and she would ask him to read certain things. And he said, as, as a child, I understood that she never asked me to read the epistles of Paul. And, and then he said, but we never questioned her, so I never asked. She was the grandma. And actually, one day after he was halfway through college, he came home to do that duty again, to read to her. And he said, with fear and trembling, I asked her, Grandma, why don't you ever ask me to read the epistles of Paul? You know what she said? She said, during the days of slavery, the master's minister would occasionally hold service for the slaves. And old man McGee was so mean that he would not let a Negro minister preach to his slaves. Always the white ministers. And often he used the text from somewhere in Paul's epistles, at least four times a year or perhaps more. He would take his text from Paul's epistle that said, Slaves, be obedient to your masters. Then he would go on to preach and to show how it was God's will that they would be good slaves. Because if they were good slaves, God would bless them. The dude's dead right now. Both the author and the slave master. But if I could get my hands on the slave master, it wouldn't be pretty. You know why I guarantee you the slave master preacher never preached? He never preached in that same section where Paul says, if you have the ability, by all means, take your freedom. I guarantee you never pre preached from the book of Philemon in which Paul returns a runaway slave to his master and says to him, I want you to take him back. Not as a slave, but as a brother. I want you to take him back as if he were me. I want you to take him back as if he were an apostle. You're going to enslave that person? The slave master preacher was misinterpreting scripture. Absolutely. And it took people like Harriet Beecher Stowe to help us understand that slaves ought to be free at whatever cost.
And it took people like Martin Luther King to help us understand that no matter the color of your skin, you're equal in the sight of God. That's a historical blemish, not only in America, but across the world. The interpretation of the Bible for the abuse of others. And it should shame us. It does shame us. So what do we do? Final point. We submit to the authority of God, which is mediated through Scripture. And we don't use what I just gave you, the misunderstanding and misinterpretation of Scripture as an excuse not to stand under its authority. We stand under its authority. Historically, we have messed it up bad, but it is still word of God and authoritative. And how do we do that? We humbly ask for guidance from the Spirit, from fellow believers, and we humbly submit, asking the question, is this the wisdom of God? Which seems like foolishness, but it's actually the wisdom of the cross. Try to use that as you unwrap your day tomorrow and weeks ahead. And may God give you his richest blessing. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your grace and your mercy. Thank you for not leaving us alone. Thank you for your authority. May we be good stewards with the mediated word of God that we have available to us. And may we humbly submit. In the name of Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen.